Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. We tortured people. I mean, 30 years ago, we would have said that we America wouldn't do that. But we systematically did it. We rationalized it through high-level, you know, legal counsel, albeit fraudulent lawyering, and no one was held accountable. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the courts, the Supreme Court, the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover those things for Slate. This weekend marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And as the withdrawal from Afghanistan continues to dominate the headlines, so does the conversation about this forever war on terror and its implications. We're going to be talking to one of the lawyers who has been litigating in the extra-legal, extra-constitutional spaces created by this war on terror. Later on in the show, Slate Plus members will get to join Mark Joseph Stern and myself for a conversation about the Supreme Court's latest shadow docket activities and what to make of the court's decision to take up a case involving religious freedom in the execution chamber. That segment is accessible only to Slate Plus members. If you are not a member, you can always sign up at slate.com slash amicus plus and access bonus content like my conversations with Mark and ad-free versions of all of the Slate network of podcasts and you will never hit a paywall on slate.com. That is slate.com slash amicus plus. And as ever, we thank you for supporting the show and the journalism we do. But first, 9-11 changed the way that we think about absolutely everything. Deemed the most egregious act of international terror, it killed almost 3,000 people and changed the way America thought about Muslims, about terrorism, about the Middle East, but also how we started to think about domestic surveillance, personal privacy, indefinite detention, policing, and yes, torture. It changed the way we started to think about America's role in policing the world. And the way that we think about these things now changed the way America actually does things Questions about civil liberty, about nation building, the whole idea of enemy combatants and a war on terror shifted these axes long after we stopped debating questions about waterboarding or the Patriot Act that was passed two months after 9-11 or the creation of ICE and military tribunals. Those things became the very fabric of the modern world of American policing, law, and detention. My guest today is Bahar Azmi. He's the legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights, and he's been challenging the U.S. government repeatedly over the past 20 years, litigating matters from the rights of Gitmo detainees to discriminatory policing practices, government surveillance, the rights of asylum seekers, and accountability for victims of torture. Bahar is currently on leave from his faculty position at Seton Hall University School of Law, where he taught 
constitutional law and directed their civil rights and constitutional litigation clinic. If we are in a forever war, I think of Bahar as one of the forever lawyers, uh, the guy who's still there and who will turn the lights off on this war if it ever ends. Um, his article uh, is in a collection entitled Crisis Lawyering that was published this spring by NYU Press. It's called Guantanamo, 20 Years of Lawyering in a Lawless Space. Bahar, in many, many ways, you are just still litigating the cases America has forgotten and still lawyering the iterations of them that plague us still. Welcome to Amicus. Thank you, Dolly. It's so good to be in conversation with someone as thoughtful and reflective uh, as you on this really, um, I feel like, solemn day. I think we're going to talk about some um, dark and depressing things about the government response and the evisceration of rights and the sort of foreverness and seepage and expansion of the war on terror paradigm. But I do find myself today, I don't know how you're feeling, just feeling really, really uh, somber about the day, um, about that, that horrible day and the feelings of fear and anxiety. Um, and just wanted to acknowledge that before we transition into you know, the exploitation of that fear and anxiety into a total security state. And I think you're exactly right, except I, I, I might say this. I, I have a, a layer over the somberness and the worry uh, of real kind of embarrassment and a little bit of almost frustration with myself because everything I just talked about, everything we're going to talk about, whether it's ICE or military tribunals or surveillance or uh, torture, those are things I used to write about uh, every week <laughs> uh, when you were when you were litigating them. And in a lot of ways, I've had the luxury of doing what I suspect a lot of our listeners have done, which is just put it aside. You know, I'm not fighting the torture fight anymore. You are. I'm not fighting the fight about provisions of the Patriot Act that I used to rail against, you are. And and so I think there's a weird way in which I'm I'm sitting here as a proxy for all the folks who think that that stuff is over. And that maybe there's just very, very, very fine-grained connections, what you're calling seepage. But the fact is, none of that stuff is over. Uh, we know it's not over because it's still your bread and butter. And so I think that might be the difference between your somberness and mine is that uh, being in conversation with you always reminds me uh, how much we left on the table and didn't resolve. <sighs> yeah, big, big sigh energy here. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> and Barra, I want to ask you maybe the one personal question that maybe will help me think about how you think about this, which is uh, you're a Muslim guy on 9-11. Um, maybe talk a little tiny bit about even if you don't mind, sort of how you personally thought about it in the first days and hours after 9-11 about how this was being framed uh, in a conversation about Muslims and othering. Because I feel as though, laced through so much of what you write and say, is this kind of feeling that that you are straddling those two worlds. Yeah, as a as a um, Egyptian-born Muslim um, raised in the United States and a sort of constitutional, progressive constitutional law professor who, you know, at the time believed deeply in um, certain legal institutions and the possibility of rights, um, I, I have been straddling that. Um, 
And at the time, I was scared, like most Muslims were, you know, appalled by the and horrified by the attacks, deeply alienated by the idea that this could be done in the name of um, a religion that I associate with um, deep kindness and family and tradition. Um, you know, I, I note that my 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 father never really heard the term jihad outside of the normal conversational personal notion of jihad struggle to you know to fast and to be good and to pray and it was that for that first time he saw that noticed that term being politicized which shows you know personally how alienated we were from that version of politicized islam can you talk a little bit about um ccr what what is it that allowed you all to pivot so quickly after 9-11 and start filing just what we all thought were audacious lawsuits uh, as early as, you know, February of 2002, just after the attacks when everybody was saying, maybe we just have to get this done, whatever that takes? Yeah, and I'll talk about So I actually wasn't at CCR at the time, but know the story well, led as it was by our inestimable former uh, legal director and president um, Michael Ratner, who passed five passed away five years ago, um, and I think you know CCR is a political organization as much as a legal organization, and understands the intersection between war and creeping authoritarianism. Um, CCR challenged a number of wars before, but in this case. Um, knew a challenge to the commencement of war in Afghanistan would be futile, um, but recognized on the landscape some of the, I guess, predictable responses. So on the one hand, Muslim men were being rounded up all over New York and New Jersey and secreted away in uh, federal detention. And as we later learned after filing suit, brutalized, held in max sort of solitary confinement, administrative segregation uh, until they were affirmatively cleared of terrorism charges, um, flipping the presumption of, of innocence. Um, and, and then, you know, we're going to come back to this theme, I think, a lot, the interplay between external and, and domestic manifestations. So that's one domestic manifestation. But then, you know, sort of quickly noticed in November 2003, Bush signed military order number one, which was to create military tribunals in Guantanamo. And Michael Ratner knew right away that was very dangerous and mobilized the team, including Joe Margulies at Cornell and Clive Stafford Smith. These are noted death penalty lawyers and knew that they had to challenge this hopeless as it was. And they filed the first habeas petition, I think, early February 2002 on behalf of Guantanamo detainees. Uh, knowing full well that four months after 9-11, it didn't stand a chance. But I think the attitude of someone like Michael and Joe was, one, there has to be some kind of humanitarian intervention, some sort of intervention between humans and state violence. And a principle is, of course, we had no idea who our clients were of skepticism towards the government's claims that these were all hardened terrorists, the worst of the worst, and therefore can be cut off from any access to law. So those were the early cases in 2002. And then, you know, as the, what I call the Bush administration's human rights crisis developed, involving torture, extraordinary rendition, 
CCR and then um, other organizations as well, of course, developed a community of, I think, legal resistance to these policies and a search for accountability, which, as you observe, we're still doing 20 years hence. And can you, just for our listeners who don't know exactly what happened in Rasul, can you just quickly, quickly spell out the litigation as it played out at the Supreme Court? Yeah, so the the, the habeas petition was filed in 2002 on behalf of a number of British and Australian detainees who happened to learn that their sons were in Guantanamo from their home countries and who reached out uh, to CCR. Um, and also a case was filed on behalf of Kuwaitis by the law firm of Sherman and Sterling, who deserve credit for wading in as, as you know, a corporate law firm into the space. Uh, and it basically said that Guantanamo... Um, I mean, the government's position as, was that these were foreign nationals held on foreign soil and so had no access to habeas corpus. Um, and more fundamentally, what the government was trying to do, this is you know, what I call the authoritarian logic of Guantanamo, was to create a prison beyond the law so they can conduct endless, brutal interrogations. Guantanamo was never about guilt or innocence or, or even punishment. Uh, it was a place to inflict maximal uh, in the CIA's words, dependence, stability, and dread, uh, forms of learned helplessness, so they become totally dependent on their interrogators. And central to that is to have a closed system that would not permit lawyers to come inside of it. That was their MO, um, and they had some precedent on their side, um, but precedent's always distinguishable, um, as we were able to do, World War II present. What wasn't distinguishable in 2002 was the political climate that got the cases quickly dismissed. But by 2004, um, there were, look, the Bush administration had invaded. Their claims to you know, executive authority seemed arguably arrogant. Their positions were maximalist. Um, and, you know, I think something else happened, which is the day... Um, a week later, after an argument in a companion case, enemy combatant case, CBS News broke the story with pictures from Abu Ghraib. Uh, and they did so on, I think, the day Justice Ginsburg asked the Solicitor General, well, what does this claim mean to total ma- maximum executive authority? Does it mean the president can tor- torture? And Clement answered, we don't torture. Um, and so that's precisely, I think, the prediction that the original lawyers had, that dark things happen in, in – um, bad things happen in dark places. Um, and so we have to open it up. And the Supreme Court said detainees would have a right to access habeas corpus, at least the habeas corpus statute. Um, and that's when we started identifying additional detainees. And, and one thing that I think CCR did that was really wise, uh, and I wasn't there for them, so I can – I can credit them as uh, Michael and others kind of democratized the representation of detainees, sort of spread out a collection of hundreds of lawyers representing all 100, 779 um, in what one commentator called the greatest mass defense effort in history and mobilized, and this was very important to the effort to destabilize Guantabo, mobilized hundreds of lawyers, including mainstream lawyers, Brahmin bankruptcy lawyers from Boston among them, um, military officers, human rights organizations, um, and you know the, the the fight to ultimately get detainees access to a court hearing uh, would take a lot longer. Um, but that the the idea that we could open up Guantanamo to the outside world, uh, I think, 
uh, at least in theory, spelled the death knell for all of the lies and mythmaking the administration was using to prop up Guantanamo. Hey, Amicus listeners, wanted to tell you about the upcoming Texas Tribune Festival. It's a multi-day celebration at the intersection of politics, public policy, and big ideas. And I'm going to be participating in it as I have done before. It's happening virtually between September 20th through the 25th. And you are going to hear from amazing speakers all week, like Pete Buttigieg, Nicole Hannah-Jones, The Castros, and more. And I'll be there talking to the hosts of the amazing Strict Scrutiny podcast, Leah Littman, Melissa Murray, and Kate Shaw. And we are going to preview the U.S. Supreme Court's upcoming term. So it will be a really good opportunity to find out what's next, both for Texas and way beyond, with incredibly, incredibly smart people. Get your tickets at tribfest.org. That's tribfest.org. We're going to pause now to hear from some of our great sponsors. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. You were the third civilian lawyer to set foot uh, in Guantanamo, and that was October 2004, I think after the Supreme Court's decision in Rasul. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you went, went on to represent uh, Murat Kurnaz, who was being detained there. Do you mind just giving us the, 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 the sort of cliff notes, maybe version of, I know, a, a, an incredibly long relationship that you had with him, how you advocated for him. Mm. How did you even learn about him? Uh, how mm-hmm. he became, I, I think, a metaphor, at least for you, yeah. about what indefinite detention would mean. So after the Rasul decision came down in June 2004, CCR and others um, started identifying additional detainees uh, who had been touched with CCR who needed lawyers. And one lawyer I'd worked with on a other s- prisoner's rights matter in New Jersey asked me if I wanted to represent this individual, one individual, Murat Kanaz. I knew nothing about him. I had a conversation with his mother, and she was understandably um, anxious. Um, and then, you know, had to get security clearances to, to, 
to go down uh, to Guantanamo. I will share one anecdote as part of the security clearance, some retired FBI agent with these incredibly meaty hands that I imagine maybe had throttled some East Germans back in the day, started asking me about my family members. And I, you know, I started telling him the names of my uncles, you know, Mamdouh, Saeed, um, and, you know, Ahmed, Mohammed. And I was just rattling off names of all of these detainees that I knew were in Guantanamo. And he seemed so puzzled and almost disturbed by that. And there was this, you know, moment of, of mirroring. Um, so I went down, um, I knew almost nothing about him. I know I brought a German translator because the mother said he didn't speak any English. And then the guard, um, after showing me a security image, blurry security image video, I think was designed to make me nervous, as all those grainy images do, said he doesn't need one. Uh, He had learned English. So I entered a room with a handwritten note from his mother that was written in Turkish um, that I still... Remember, it was very simple. You will be visited by an American lawyer you can trust. We have been vacationing in Turkey. Your brothers go to school. We saw his ex-wife, and she is loving you. And I just saw the sort of look on his face transform a little bit like like a crack in the matrix. Um, and we talked. Uh, we got along really well. The, the only rights detainees seemed to have was a right for their lawyers to bring them food. Uh, so, um, he had coffee from McDonald's for the first time. Later, they would open a Starbucks on, in Guantanamo, um, and just a little piece of absurdist, uh, American consumers trivia, Murat preferred McDonald's to Starbucks, as it turns out. I'm not sure I can get him an advertising gig, um, but for those of, uh, you interested in coffee dynamics, uh, and so when we got back, when I got back to the United States, it was very hard leaving him that first time. Um, we finally learned the reasons that the government offered for his detention. And the primary one, uh, they, we had, they had these combatant status review tribunals. These were administrative show trials that they were going to say satisfied the mandate of Rasul and gave them adequate process. Um, but, you know, these were out of law and into the domain of literature, um, just preposterous. You know, you were presumed an enemy combatant and without a lawyer and having been in Guantanamo, you had to disprove your enemy combatant status when in the majority of cases, the enemy combatant status was based on classified evidence. Um, in his case, they said his friend from Germany was a suicide bomber and committed a suicide bombing, although they misspelled it. We, already fig- we ultimately figured out in Istanbul in a synagogue. And Murat said, oh, he did that? I do not need a friend like that. Uh, I did not know. So, you know, putting aside the astonishing legal proposition that someone can spend the rest of their life in detention because of the unknown and unknowable. Look, this this happened in 2003 when Murat was incommunicado in Guantanamo. Put that astonishing proposition aside, it was just made up. You know, within 24 hours, we were on the phone with Bilgin and had an affidavit for him saying, hi, I'm alive, um, but just totally made up. And at the same time, he, no one shared the classified file, which I ultimately made public, that showed the U.S. had been convinced that he was innocent and the Germans as well. Nevertheless, he spent five more years there. Uh, and we became very close, as a lot of lawyers had with their clients. He was my, my, I was his only connection to the outside world to learn about his family, to learn about politics to the extent that we could talk about it. Um, he had a 
rapid, ripping sense of humor um, that was so delightful, but also this very rooted faith in Islam that got him through this. I think, um, you know, one advantage I think some of these prisoners had is praying five times a day helps break up the monotony um, to some extent. Um, although also in this classified file, it shows you the authoritarian thinking in Guantanamo. I, I recently looked back on it while writing a brief. Uh, despite all the exculpatory evidence, uh, one lieutenant deemed him in his file dangerous because A, he asked about the height of a basketball hoop, presumably as a plot to escape Guantanamo. And second, he prayed during the national anthem as if um, we expect someone we, we hold as an enemy should abide by, you know, our calling to national greatness. Um, he was released in 2006. I was there for the reunion with him and his family, which was remarkable. Um, and uh, I was there for his wedding. Uh, and it's been a while since I've been in touch, but he's thriving. That's a... <laughs> tragic but ultimately kind of a happy story about someone who's eventually released and reunited with his family. Um, but I feel like we can't really leave this conversation without talking, at least for a moment, about um, Abu Zubaydah, who you defended, no longer defend, but defended for over a decade. Um, he's uh, the subject of torture, unlawful detention, unlawful questioning, and he's still there, the number 40 guy at Gitmo. Um, what does that leave us to think about the project of the 40 people still left behind at Guantanamo? Uh, there were other faces of indefinite detention. Previously, I would say it was Adnan Latif, who had been cleared for release. And after pleas to the Supreme Court to please take his case and undo the damage that the D.C. Circuit had been doing to the subsequent Guantanamo case, the Boumediene case, when the D.C. Circuit, which was far to the right of the Supreme Court at the same time, was just destroying habeas, begged the Supreme Court to take his case, Latif's case. He's been cleared for release. Supreme Court passed, and two months later, Adnan Latif took his life. He used to be the face of indefinite detention. Now I think it's, it's, it is someone like uh, Abu Zubaydah, who was... Um, at the intersection of so many pieces of the war on terror, apprehended uh, in, a, in, in Pakistan, um, flown to Thailand where there was initial interrogation by the FBI, by Ali Sufan, who suggested he was making some progress and got some major leads from Abu Zubaydah. Um, nevertheless, um, civilians in D.C. thought we need to do more. And then he became one of the first victims of the systematic program of torture and dehumanization and brutalization through waterboarding, all sorts of physical violence. Um, and uh, then sent to European black sites for more torture interrogation. And after 2006 decision in Hamdan that basically said the Geneva Conventions prohibit this kind of brutalization brought to Guantanamo. And he is the iconic face of indefinite detention now because there are some people who are cleared for release, who in theory the government should be working on returning. There are some people who are slated for military commissions, so they you know, will be tried, um, although we can talk about why that probably won't happen. And then some who Obama said were uh, not enough evidence to try but too dangerous to release. 
Um, you know, in our opinion, that's in a place that believes in due process. That should be a null set, should only be prosecuted based on what you've done, not on predictions of how black your soul is based on, you know, some expert prognostication about returning to the fight. But nevertheless, he's in that category. But ultimately, I think this is about keeping him secret. He has a lot of stories to tell, some of which have gotten out through his drawings. Um, but it is hard to know what the government would ultimately do with Abu Zubaydah um, after what they have done to Abu Zubaydah. And, and this is one of your through line places, right? Where, you know, in addition to normalizing and uh, becoming complacent, I think these things grow and expand and take different forms. And I, I'm guessing you would say so much of the conversation now that we're hearing, even in the last few weeks around leaving Afghanistan, has that same through line of, you know, oh, well, mistakes were made, human life was lost, we learned, and yet, again, no sense of real stock taking, no sense of real accountability. This must feel awfully uh, resonant for you mm. after what you just talked about in terms of Gitmo. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really uh, good, good point. The sort of, um, oops, we did our best uh, to describe calamitous war making, um, total <laughs> distortions of American institutions that really, yeah, have become normalized, I think only through this bizarre filter of American exceptionalism, you know, that makes us ignore, you know, the genocide of Native Americans and, you know, um, minimize the uh, violence of slavery. That We just have this Im immense capacity to put our outrages behind us. And I think there are consequences. I mean... I don't want to over try and oversell this, but I do think there's a through line between this these forms of soft authoritarianism and the hard authoritarian in Trump. I mean, when we tortured people, I mean, 30 years ago, we would have said that we America wouldn't do that, but we systematically did it. We rationalized it through high level, you know, legal counsel, um, albeit fraudulent lawyering, uh, and no one was held accountable. Um, the sort of the outrages go totally unpunished or unreconciled, and so um, they become normal, and we just get inoculated to one absurdity and one governmental abuse after another. And maybe I don't want to overstate what you're saying, but it does feel a little bit as though part of the trick here is if it comes in a different bottle, wearing a different cloak in a different iteration, then it's easy not just to say, well, that thing, you know, we don't torture people anymore uh, without seeing all of what comes after it, the iterations that follow, but also to sort of tell an American exceptionalist story about how we're learning and getting better. Yes, right. We won't do it uh, again. But of course, right, as you're saying, it'll, it'll come up in a different garb. I mean, so maybe we stopped formally torturing, but at the southern border, we separated parents from babies, an alternative form of torture, the design to 
maximize cruelty. Um, I tried to explain that to a German friend of mine who I knew. He said, I, but I don't understand. This is Gestapo. Um, so, yeah, and I think, you know, there's, there's, I mean, another through line, it seems to me, is um, we sort of posit a vision of freedom through these past wars, and certainly Trump embraces this, it's almost like a Jacksonian, Andrew Jacksonian vision of freedom, where um, ours is increased at the repression of others. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of Adam Serwer's point that the, the cruelty is the point. It's sort of maximize cruelty, shock and awe. What Munir Ahmed calls the iconography of terror, showing, you know, subdued uh, and cloaked Guantanamo detainees tied together. Um, we're winning, so you are free. And by the way... Uh, they hate us for our freedom, um, which I still can't quite figure out how to unwrap from some massive flag of narcissism. Um, and yeah, and I think Trump has sort of taken that mantle and said, you know, uh, we deserve to inflict cruelty in other people and we will feel better about ourselves. Some of us will when we do that. And, but that started before him. Now let's get back to our conversation with Bahar Azmi, the legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. I've seen you use the word um, narrative scaffolding uh, to describe, in this case, it's in reference to this legal category, enemy combatant. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of about the stories we tell. And I think what you've just done is some a couple of versions of that, mm -hmm. you know, stories we tell about what is required to be done to others to make ourselves free, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what we do when something is so exigent and so dangerous that what we have to do is be cruel. And that should be something that a patriot has no problem with. Um, and and I wonder if if another place where we've just had a lot of narrative scaffolding created by you know the Bush interventions after 9/11 just have to do with claims about presidential power and presidential authority over war making and a very very again kind of cartoonish story we tell about the president cowboy who saves us all and you don't want to know what's on that wall, but I'm going to take care of it. And that also blossoms, again, wearing different cloaks and culminating in Trump, you know, wanting to build a wall and yeah. separate families. But that's another place that we just fell asleep at the switch and said, you know, we we want our president to be that guy. Right. And there's this old, you know, the, the resistance to the abstract civil libertarian objection to presidential authority, which, you know, which is, um, it may like look okay now, um, but it's going to get bigger um, and someone else is going to come and use it in dangerous ways um, that everyone will agree uh, is dangerous. And that's um, certainly what uh, happened. I mean, thinking about so much of the Trump illegality and assertion of executive power, I mean, it was really... We were kind of accustomed to it by the Bush administration, who tried to bypass Congress around surveillance and around detention. And there is the the um, vesting in one person, 
you know, kind of total authority and Congress goes along with it. And um, uh, we're all for the, the, the worst. And, you know, I think the other narrative, part of the narrative scaffolding is this notion of um, that the Bush administration created this everywhere existential Muslim menace that's not defined by country. It is global. It is internal. It is everywhere. This undifferentiated thing you have to be afraid of. Um, uh, and where the whole Muslim world is a battlefield, um, you know, I think contributes to a demand that we fortify the homeland, not just against Muslims, but the next undifferentiated enemy. And it's not, it wasn't hard from, for Trump to pivot from Muslim terrorist to Mexican criminal and back and forth. It's just, it's fluid for him. Um, but that scaffolding was erected before he got into to office. Um, and, you know, I guess incubated by Obama um, at a lower temperature. And I want to say you've been as brutal a critic of Obama on some of these issues as you uh, have been uh, toward Bush or Trump. The the one other piece of this that I just want you to riff on for a minute, because I think, again, it formed the spine of so much of my writing and thinking at the time. And now I think, as with everything else we're talking about, it's really been cooked into the soup. And that is just this, again, in interstitial space that isn't law. It isn't, you know, warfare, international relations. It's not crime. It's this other thing <laughs> that that got constructed. I, I, we can fight about whether 9-11 amplifies and accelerates it or creates it, but that thing that you're describing, that lawless space that lives in the midst of those things, it, we're, we're not talking about criminal law. We're not talking about international military law. We're not talking uh, about the mafia. We're talking about a thing that is nothing and everything. That happens too, right? Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I don't. It, th- that's exactly right. We're sort of trying to get our hands around this thing that um, is impossible to grasp because it's huge. It's slippery. It morphs. Uh, and so it's 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 everything, and and as you say, nothing at the same time because it's undefinable. Um, you know, I've been asked a couple of times about so what does the end of the war in Afghanistan mean? Does that mean that detentions in Guantanamo should end? Um, in theory, uh, but it reminded me of your point that there, this is all malleable gush that's not accountable to actual. Um, legal principles. I mean, the government will argue, sure, the war is over, and sure, we argued in Hamdi in 2004 that you can detain people to prevent them from going back to the battlefield. But the battlefield is now global, and we can detain not only people who are from Afghanistan, but who might be affiliated with some global al-Qaeda network, and al-Qaeda might reestablish itself. It's it's just totally um, meaningless and made up their suggestion about where their power starts and where it ends. Um, and I guess um, their conception of power really doesn't, doesn't particularly end. And just, you know, it, it, is, it is bananas to hear the government say, 
you know, a 54 Yemeni person with diabetes and bad knees needs to be held another five years, otherwise he might go back to the fight. What fight? It's been 20 years. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's hard when some of the rules are made up. And I, and I guess part of what, and I, and I know you don't purport to be, uh, you know, global affairs specialist, but it does also, I think, figure somewhere in here that some of the radicalization that happens post-Afghanistan, post-Iraq, post-ISIS is in reaction to the things that were done and the lack of accountability. So whether or not your 54-year-old uh, Yemeni is going back to the fight, it is certainly the case that we live in a world that has been radicalized by not just some of the things that happened in the wake of 9-11, but the reaction to the lawlessness from a country that, you know, you you open with this, you always believe to be a beacon mm-hmm. of rule of law and democracy. Yeah. I just, yeah, I, I wonder if Americans have any sense of how we're perceived um, abroad. I mean, a paradox that Murat always raised that strikes me as kind of amazing that the, you know, the Obama administration, for example, and Bush too, would say, you know, we can't release this person to Yemen because there's an al-Qaeda crisis there. I mean, this is the most powerful military on the order of 100 in human history, and we're worried about that and not the constant din of drone strikes that are, you know, terrorizing people in Pakistan and Yemen. That's what it's just it's just kind of re- remarkable the level of fear at that granular level that seems so disconnected to reality. So, you know, betraying institutions because some infinitesimal risk um, is just so distorted. And, and Bahar, you started to go down this road and I think didn't get to quite say what you wanted to say, but I, I think you're also saying – um, that this has an effect on uh, Muslim Americans. This has an effect on how, you know, I, I'm remembering President Bush going to a mosque in D.C., calling Americans not to single out Muslim Americans. And then we just slide almost inexorably, as as as, as you just pointed out, into the Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering in the United States. Those are also connected. Yeah. In your view, right? Yeah. Um, the, even Bush's term, so he, you know, he did the the right thing, which was sort of visit patriotic Muslims, showing their patriotism and calling us not on us not to discriminate. Um, that's fine. Um, but he also referenced, um, you know, this global Islamic network as evildoers, you know, and. Um, did what he he did, not just what he said. Um, and so Trump takes that uh, soft authoritarianism and says, oh, you said you were going to get rid of this threat, but you obviously didn't do enough. Leave it to me. Um, so having created this enemy, this is Muslim enemy, leave it to me to finish the job. Um, and that's you know what he tried on whatever, day seven of his presidency to exclude all Muslims from America. And then I guess his attention moved on. But yes, it, it definitely – 
um, I think created a, um, a pathway uh, for that. And, you know, there's some other geopolitics, of course, as well. Like, you can't deny the impact of the intervening, the, the, the perceived threat or insecurity of having an intervening black president with Hussein as a middle name to stoke paranoia in the uh, public life. Um, so, uh, it's not all attributable to, to Bush. Um, it's, you know, sort of deeply melded with American culture and and xenophobia and racism and all of those things that are deeply melded in American culture. So this gives me a, a nice place to pivot to another thing that's deeply melded into American culture, uh, having you've just done some good advertising for McDonald's. But I do think that the private sector runs with so many parts of this as well. And this must inflect the way you think about domestic policing now, you know, the militarization of American police forces, you know, $1.6 billion of Pentagon money, uh, of Pentagon uh, 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 money goes to arm local police departments with military equipment. And then the private sector, as I flicked at up top, you know, getting involved in the use of data surveillance and analytics uh, just to keep consumer uh, prerogatives uh, at the top. So so I want to just give you a minute to reflect on, you know, you've talked a lot about the sort of exceptionalism and patriotism and the ways we think about ourselves as separate from what came before. But boy, does um, the private sector ever lurch into the space here too. Yeah, the influence of uh, sort of right private military contractors who, you know, I mean, so much of the Afghan war was outsourced to them. We have lawsuits against some involved in uh, torture in Abu Ghraib. Um, and the sort of constant production through, you know, billion-dollar markets of more and more surveillance capacities as we're militarizing the border, arming police, as you say, um, is really scary. And by the way, these contracts I know from the cases are, you know, um, trying to get the kind of in an Eric Princean vision, trying to get uh, kind of immunity from um, kind of obtain the same immunity that the, the sovereign has so that they will be free to fight wars in the future without, um, w- without accountability. But the police militarization point, I think, is also incredibly important. Um, I mean, just look at the SWAT teams that descended in every municipal police force post-Floyd or, remember, um, in Ferguson. Um, and so certainly, I, I, and I, you know, I'm not a total expert on this, but certainly pre-9-11, major metropolitan areas had SWAT teams. Um, and because of the war on drugs, we shouldn't forget that as we're, you know. Um, but I don't think it was in that level in Peoria and Ferguson um, and just all this terrorist narrative and the surplus military equipment was given to them. So that like that summer Portland, you know, was that Portland or Fallujah? Um, You know, and I think there are real codependencies between external fighting and counterinsurgency and police mechanisms domestically. Um, And given the lionization of police forces, I mean, I think the, Police unions in, in New York want to be treated like the military in terms of reverence for them, in terms of democratic unaccountability, uh, and in terms of political and financial support. And I find that terrifying. 
I want to give you a minute to talk about accountability because, you know, right now we're having a fight, although I think the fight is is uh, been litigated and lost about the fact that no one in the Trump administration uh, has been held to account for any of some of the most horrible practices, uh, including family separation, that there was this decision taken to, you know, draw a line and move on and not divide the country. And I, I'm kind of smiling as I ask you this, because, of course, the example we all use is your example when we talk about this and we say, well, there was no, ex- you know, accountability for the black sites and no accountability for torture and no accountability uh, uh, for mass surveillance, what is it, what is the answer to the question, oh, but, you know, what you're doing is politicizing this, you know, you're trying to somehow benefit from still fighting this war 20 years after and not letting go and not just saying, oh, Guantanamo, you're silly. There's only 39 people there. I feel like you more than anyone has a right to explain to us what the consequences of a world of no accountability really looks like in the long term. Yeah, I think it looks um, it looks a lot like how we've already described it. Absence of accountability for Bush administration officials makes it impossible to imagine a proceeding that would hold Trump officials accountable for lawlessness. Um, and you know, I actually want to maybe I can sort of um, open the lens a little bit um, and and try and understand what about the absence of accountability except for, let's say, street crime or drugs is so endemic in America. You know, we talked about Rasul and the way that we litigated Rasul in 2004 was not to pit terrorist suspects against the, uh, the rights of terrorist suspects against national security. It was a story about um, um, kind of exceptionalism, that, that Guantanamo was an illegitimate experiment. America had lost its way. Uh, it was exceptional. Um, and, you know, 20 years hence, you have to ask ourselves, and I, is it really exceptional? Or is it at the sort of the, the core of American styles of jurisprudence and accountability? Think about the uh, massive carceral state, the laws around the death penalty and how impenetrable it is. Um, qualified immunity um, and all sorts of immunity doctrines. Um, It's a sort of lurching towards authoritarianism and power in authority that um, is scary in the abstract, but is also, I think, particularly worrying and that always manifests itself uh, in brutalizing and targeting and controlling um, minority communities, black and brown and Muslim communities. Uh, because there is still exceptionalism bound with that uh, lack of accountability. And people in power who are typically, you know, white men don't want to be held accountable. That's such an incredibly granular pulling at a whole bunch of threads in this conversation that I hadn't even quite uh, thought about. And I'm really thankful for the for the sober answer. I, I do feel like I started by saying, you know, you've you've been pretty tough on the Obama administration. I think you have a lot of asks of the Biden administration. Um, 
I'm thinking now about uh, Obama in his presidency when he was being asked about hunger strikers at Guantanamo who were being uh, fed by tubes. And and he articulated, you know, again, this idea of, you know, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. We keep hearing, uh, and we heard it again after the January Six attacks. This is not who we are. And again, I feel like there are very few people in a better position uh, on this 20th anniversary of 9 11 because you're still working, we're still working the, the, the original sins of it uh, through radical lawyering. Who, who are we? This is who we are. We are at the same time a country that elects the first black president, uh, an incredibly impressive. Um, human being with soaring vision for what is possible. We are that. Um, and we are also a country that brutalizes uh, prisoners and detainees. Um, and and maybe more to the point, we're a country that can hold both ideas at the same time, but certainly preferencing the noble one while ignoring the scary parts. Bahar Azmi is the legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. He's been challenging the American government repeatedly over the last two decades. Right now, he's on leave from his faculty position at Seton Hall University School of Law, where he taught constitutional law, directed their civil rights and constitutional litigation clinic. The article I was drawing from today is in a book entitled Crisis Lawyering, published this last year by NYU Press. And his chapter is Guantanamo, 20 Years of Lawyering in a Lawless Space. I wish we had more time. I feel like there are so many other uh, lawsuits that you are involved in that really speak to this moment. But maybe we could just leave it at saying that it seems to me that for those of us who are spending today looking back uh, at 9-11, uh, it really is a valuable, valuable exercise to think not just about where was I then, <laughs> you know, what was on TV mm. then, but to think about what have we become as a consequence of what we're not looking at. Is that fair? Yeah. That's uh, beautifully said, Dahlia. Thank you so, so much for being with us. My pleasure. It was a really great conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Thank you. Thank you for your letters and suggestions. They really do help us feel like we're not just shouting into the void. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.